Let me uh, invite you to turn one more time to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13. It's been a few weeks and some of you are visiting with us today, so let me just remind you that we've been taking a close look at 1 Corinthians 13 as we make our way through this letter uh, to look at the love chapter. And what we've been after is seeing and understanding how we are loved in Jesus Christ and how in Jesus Christ we are called to love one another. I said at the start of this little series that what we all need more than anything in our lives is more of the love of Jesus. And so this is a great place for us uh, to go in God's word because here we have a description, a beautiful description of the perfect love of Christ. And at the same time, we have a description of how in Christ Jesus we are called to love one another. Today, we're going to take one more look at this passage and think about Paul's final description, the beginning of verse 8, where he says, love never ends. Let's pick up the reading in verse 4, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4 through the end of the chapter. This is God's word. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. I wonder, what's your experience of the love of Jesus? It's one thing to think about the love of Jesus. It's one thing to talk and hear about the love of Jesus. It's another thing altogether to know the power of his love in your own life. And so as we wrap up, this series in 1 Corinthians 13, I think the pressing question for all of us is, have you found the love of Jesus and begun to live by it? A striking illustration of this very thing is seen in the life of the early church theologian Augustine. Remember Augustine, he's, he's, he's a great example of somebody who found the love of Christ, or better yet, was found by the love of Christ. In his confessions, Augustine describes his coming to faith in Christ being like 
falling in love after looking for it in all of the wrong places. In his own words, he wrote, Late it was that I loved you. And he goes on to lament the years wasted as he pursued satisfaction in the things God made instead of the God who made all things and for whom Augustine was made. And as Augustine reflects on his conversion, something becomes abundantly clear because he came to know the love of Christ. Augustine's love was entirely reordered. No longer did he just love himself and endlessly pursue pleasure and satisfaction for things in this life because now there was a new controlling love in his life. And that is the love of God in Jesus Christ. And that is the love that we have been talking about for several weeks now. It's the love that we want in our own lives. And this is why 1 Corinthians 13 is such a great place to slow down and reflect because as we've seen, each description of love Read in the light of Scripture helps us to see that everything Paul says here about love is perfectly demonstrated in the life of Jesus Christ, who is love enfleshed. But we've also recognized that reading 1 Corinthians 13 this way also forces us to come to terms with the fact that Jesus is, in a lot of ways, Everything we are not. I said there's an easy way to prove that. You might remember at the the start I said you can read through the love chapter and and every occurrence of love just insert your name. And when you do that it quickly becomes very uncomfortable reading, doesn't it? Because you discover that you are very often everything love is not. You, uh, You don't do what love does and you do what love doesn't do. And in stark contrast to that, if we were to read this in a Christ-centered way and place Jesus' name in the place of every occurrence of love, we find a very fitting description of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, we're confronted once again, I think, by the contrast between us and Jesus again when we read the first part of verse 8, love never ends. Or as some other translations have it, love never never fails. Now, we we all know that there have been times in our lives when our love has failed. But not so with Jesus. His love never ends and his love never, ever fails. Now, there are different translations of what Paul says here at the beginning of verse 8. But the language Paul uses in the Greek, it really does emphasize the unending character of of love, that the love of of God in Christ, it, it doesn't falter, it doesn't let up, it doesn't stop, it will never end. And that's confirmed by, by the context that love keeps going, but Paul is making the point that various spiritual gifts will become obsolete and pass away. Remember, the love chapter is smack dab in the middle of Paul's discussion about spiritual gifts in chapters 12 through 14. Remember the Corinthians, some of them thought they were the pneumaticos, the the spiritual ones, uh, because of certain gifts that they possessed. And they were making certain gifts the 
the be-all and the end-all of the Christian life. And Paul is challenging this kind of thinking. Um, and, and Paul's point is that no matter how useful those gifts may be, that they serve a temporary purpose. They will not last forever, but love goes on. Love will never end. And so he says, take, for example, prophecy and tongues in verse 8. We're going to take a closer look at those spiritual gifts when we get to chapter 14. We get into the forest of chapter 14. But notice Paul's point here. No matter how useful those gifts may be, they will cease. They'll become obsolete. Even knowledge will pass away. Not knowledge in the sense of knowing the truth, but knowledge as a spiritual gift given to some believers to discern and understand the deep things of the faith. Paul is saying this gift will pass away. Look at verse 9. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. One day, Jesus will return and make all things perfect, bring things to completion. And when that day comes, there will be no need for the partial, but love will endure. Love will abide. And then Paul shows the difference between the way things are now and the way things will be when God makes everything perfect in Christ with these two analogies. The analogies of a child and then a mirror in verses 11 and 12. It says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So think about this and ponder what Paul's saying. He's saying there's a difference between the way we speak and think and reason as children and how we think and speak and reason as adults. We, We don't act like children anymore, speak and think like children, because We've changed. Something has happened to us. He's not saying that the way children think and reason and talk is bad, but it's a stage that gives way to further development and maturity. And so it will be when the perfect comes. When Jesus returns, there will be things that become unnecessary and obsolete when we reach creaturely perfection and maturity in Christ. Think about a mirror, the imagery there. At that time, you know, the city of Corinth was actually well known for its production of brass mirrors. But even the best of those mirrors could only produce a, a dim reflection. Paul's developing this and he's saying one day we will see Jesus face to face. What we know now in part, then we will know as fully as we can as finite creatures. Paul makes, I think, these two comparisons to say that whatever knowledge we gain from spiritual gifts is only partial in comparison to the perfect knowledge that we will have in eternity when we see Jesus face to face and become as he is. When his perfection comes, everything that is not permanent will be swept away, become obsolete, will pass. And this includes certain spiritual gifts 
which become unnecessary and obsolete. And so Paul's challenge to the Corinthians is basically, look, you guys have made what is at best secondary, spiritual, certain spiritual gifts, you've made these things primary, and you've relegated what is absolutely necessary for anything to matter at all. Love. And so stop this preoccupation with gifts and giftedness and start pursuing what will last forever. Let that be a lesson to us. And we'll come back in a few minutes to reflect on that a little bit more. But it is the enduring nature of love which leads Paul to say what he does in verse 13. Where he says, Now faith, hope, and love abide, these three But the greatest of these is love. He's saying love is even superior to the virtues of faith and hope. One of the reasons for that is love is not merely a feature of this present existence. It will be one of the prevailing features of the life to come. Some of you might be familiar with Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Heaven is a World of Love. Right? The, the love of the triune God, the love within the Trinity, the love of the Trinity for the redeemed, the responsive love of the redeemed for the triune God, and the mutual love of the redeemed for one another. Paul is saying that's going to go on forever, perfectly into eternity. It will never, ever cease. Okay, so as we've, if we run through this passage, there's, there's one more thing we need to say in the light of how we've been approaching 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13 is a description of the love of God in Christ. Then we would do well to think for a few minutes about how his love never ends. That his love, as the psalmist says, endures forever. The love of God in Jesus never, ever fails. Paul reflects on this wonderful reality in another of his letters, well-known passage in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. If you'd like to, you can go ahead and turn there. I want to reflect on these verses for a few moments in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. There Paul writes about the unstoppable and never-ceasing love of God for us in Jesus Christ. It is a love that endures through all challenges, all trials, and will keep going into eternity. Friends, I think that's something we really need to have settled in our hearts because in my brief years as a pastor, if there's one thing that I've learned, it's that many of us struggle to really believe deep down that the Father's heart is full of love for his children. There are many times we may be tempted to think that God's love may fail, that he might stop loving us. And there are a lot of reasons we have such thoughts and fears. Sometimes it's brought on by suffering. We we experience things that are so painful and hard and difficult that we are tempted to, to begin to wonder, how could God love me if he allows this to happen. Sometimes it's brought on by our own moral failures, maybe failures in the past or ongoing failures in the present. 
failures in the past, we might think, how could God love me if I ever did X, Y, or Z? Or how could God presently love me when I keep failing and I keep giving into this same old ugly sin? Whatever the reason for our doubts, whenever we are tempted to doubt the love of God, one of the places we need to go in Scripture is Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39, where Paul makes this knockdown argument to prove that nothing can ever separate us from the unending love of God in Jesus Christ. So let's walk through Paul's argument here. Notice how he starts by arguing from the greater to the lesser. He says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God the Father, in a demonstration of love, did not spare his own son, his beloved son, his only begotten son. He delivered him up. He did not spare him, as language Paul uses. He, he gave him up to suffering and the cursed death of a cross. And Paul is saying, think it through. If God the Father loves you enough to do that, then how will he not also with him graciously provide every other thing that you need? But we may still be tempted to doubt the love of God in our lives. And so Paul starts to talk about potential challengers to God's love for us. In verses 33 and 34, Paul ushers us into a courtroom context. Right? Some of us still worry, perhaps, that we have you know, legal troubles with God. Our sins are so sinful, maybe we think that if Satan were to show up and accuse us as he loves to do, we, we fear that the charges might just stick and that God might kick us out of his presence for all eternity. Paul says to that, but it's God who justifies. Remember that the divine judge is also the justifier. If we, and he's saying if we trust in Jesus, his son who he delivered up to the cross, if we trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, then God has already, not, not something in the future that's yet to happen, he has already declared us Forgiven and counted us righteous in his sight. Not because of anything we have done, but solely on the basis of the merits of Jesus Christ. Some might still fear that, you know, even if God has already, you know, provisionally forgiven me, we might think that I may still in the end be condemned. Well, notice what Paul goes on to say. Who is to condemn Jesus Christ is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. What Paul is saying here is so wonderful. He, he is saying that for those who are in Christ Jesus, condemnation is an impossibility. It's an impossibility. Why is that? Because Jesus is the one who died and was raised. In his death, 
Jesus was condemned in our place. He stood in the place of his people and he received in himself everything that his people's sins deserved so that the justice of God was fully satisfied on Calvary's cross as God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And so you see, Paul is saying that in order for God to condemn you, believer in Jesus, God would have to stop being who he is. He would have to cease being God because he would have to deny himself, his own nature. He would have to stop being just and he would have to do something that is actually unjust because justice has already been satisfied through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. But God cannot stop being who he is, can he? He cannot deny himself or change. And more than that, Paul goes on to say Christ was raised. And in his resurrection, Paul elaborates on this elsewhere, Jesus was was vindicated. He was justified in his resurrection as the righteous son of God so that all who trust in him share in his status before God the Father. And even more than that, Paul goes on to say, the same resurrected and righteous Jesus, where is he right now? He is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, making intercession for you. Next, Paul turns from legal troubles to what we might just call other troubles in life. He mentions tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. Now, I think we'd all agree these are, these are serious dangers. I mean, can, can any of these things put a stop to God's love? Some of these things are, are common to humanity, but we might say especially to the people of God as they live in this world and sometimes are called to suffer for the cause of Christ. God's people have endured these sorts of troubles down through the ages. And Paul makes that very point by appealing back to a psalm in verse Psalm of David in verse 36. So it's nothing new for the people of God. But when we face such troubles, it could be tempting to think God doesn't love us. He doesn't care. We may think that if he did, then he wouldn't allow these kinds of things to happen to us. But friends, the Bible insists that if we try to measure God's love for us with the rule of our present circumstances... We are destined to get it wrong. One way or another, we are going to get it wrong. No matter what we are going through, Paul is saying, God's love is there all the time. There is no trouble or hardship that can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. In all these things, Paul says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And this has been the testimony of suffering, conquering believers down through the ages of history by the grace of God and by the work of the Holy Spirit. It can be our testimony too. In all our troubles, all our distress, when we're tempted to doubt the love of God, we need to learn to preach the good news of the unending, unfailing love 
of God in Christ. See, the, the, the God of the gospel wants you to know that his love will never fail you. He, he wants you to know in your heart that he will never forsake you. He wants you to know that no matter the trials and tribulations, that the banner over your life is love. And so Paul's argument for the everlasting love of God, it, it builds to this climax where he, he lists every possible obstacle that he could imagine. And he says that none of it, none of it could ever get in the way of God's love for us in Christ Jesus. And thus he, he starts with life and death. Think about death. death. Death is a great divider, isn't it? It divides body and soul. It divides us from people we love, at least for a time. Paul is wanting us to understand that love, uh, death can never divide us from love itself. Because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, our death now, rather than dividing us from the love of God, ushers us into the loving presence of our God. And Paul then turns to various authorities after talking about the issues of life and death, and he says, neither angels nor rulers can separate us from the love of God. Now, angels here likely refers to you know, fallen angels, demons, who are constantly seeking to trip up the people of God and cause trouble for them. There's, a, there's debate about rulers referring here to earthly or heavenly powers. But whoever these rulers are, they, they cannot separate us from the love of God, Paul says. Think about both possibilities. The most spiritual powers can do is tempt us to think God doesn't love us, but they can't actually keep God from loving us. And earthly powers are even weaker than that. They can, might not feel that way sometimes, but they can, they can persecute Christians. They can close down churches. They can make life hard for the people of God, but they can never stop God from loving his people. And then Paul considers Time and eternity and says neither things present nor things to come can sever us from God's love. From now until forever, we are kept in the love of God. And Paul speaks spatially, not height nor depth can separate us. No matter where we go, no matter where we are, we are never outside of the love of God in life and in death. And so whenever we, maybe especially we need to make this application after the last 13 months or so, whenever we feel alone or isolated or lonely or like nobody cares about our situation, we can know that the love of the Lord abides and has not forsaken us. And so life and death, principalities and powers, present and future, up and down, wherever we are, Paul seems to have covered just about everything uh, in terms of God's inexhaustible and unending love. But just to make sure, I love this, just to make sure he ends by saying, nor anything else in all creation, just in case you think of anything else, nor anything else in all creation, 
No one and nothing can get in the way of God loving his people in Christ. And you see, do you see how this is 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8, explained and applied? Love never ends. Love never fails. This is the love of God in Christ. And my friends, this is a light love to build your life on. And Paul is saying to us back in 1 Corinthians 13, since we are loved in precisely these terms, we are called to give to others, to one another, what we have received from God. We are to love one another as we are loved in Christ, with a love that doesn't quit, with a love that doesn't give up, with a love that doesn't stop, a love that endures, yes, troubles and challenges and divisions and disagreements and even threats from outside. No matter what comes our way, the people of God keep loving each other because God keeps loving us. That's our high calling in Christ Jesus, dear friends. And so as Paul wraps up talking about love, he, he ends with a simple, straightforward command. It's actually in chapter 14, verse 1, but it is Paul's conclusion to this discussion about love. And it is a command that applies to every single Christian. Pursue love. Now, it's hard really to capture, I think, in English, what, what Paul is saying here. Um, it carries the idea of chasing after love. Like a hound after the hare. You, you go hard after love. You pursue it relentlessly. That's what Paul is saying we are to do as Christians. And this is a command that doesn't just plop out of you know, the sky into our laps. This is a command that is generated by the gospel of God's love for us. We are those who, by grace, have experienced the love of Christ which has saved us and has made us new and is changing us day by day. And now we are to pursue love in relation to one another. Because you are loved, you can love like this. And to press it on even more, because you are loved, you must love like this. We must make this our aim. Your friends, I am, as a pastor, I've been reflecting about this all week, and I could go on and on about all of the examples that came to my mind and thinking about how you, you, you are already loving one another in various ways. And I'm so thankful for that, that by the grace of God, we can see this going on among us. But I want to say to us, let's not slow down in our pursuit. Let's not let up. Let's keep chasing after love and be serious about loving one another. And after a long look at 1 Corinthians 13, we should all have some idea of what a headlong pursuit of love will, will look like among us. It means we'll be patient with one another. It means we'll bear along with one another our weaknesses and our failures. It means we'll be kind to one another, tender-hearted. We'll go out of our way to do good to one another. 
It means we will not promote ourselves or insist on our own way. It means that we will consistently make less of ourselves and more of others. And we will be ready to forgive when we hurt each other as we will. We will refuse to be irritable and resentful. We will believe the best about one another. And in the most difficult circumstances, we'll keep believing, keep hoping. And yes, keep on loving. See, if we know the love of Jesus, this is our calling in the gospel. A calling in which we will fail. And we don't have to hide that. We don't have to brush over that. We can be honest about the fact that we won't love one another the way that we should all of the time. We know our love fails. We find it so hard to love one another the way that Jesus loves us. But we can all rest assured that the perfect, never-failing love of Jesus, which binds us and unites us together, will never fail. Nothing can separate us from that love. And dear friends, by faith in him, we are permanently connected to a love source that will not fail. And our love can be renewed again and again and again. And so as we come to the end, at the end of 1 Corinthians 13, I, I simply want to say this to you. Dearly beloved brother and sister, remember how you are loved and pursue love and live with the hope that one day when the perfect comes, your name can be written into the love chapter and it will be a fitting description because you have been conformed to the image of the one who is love itself. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank you so much for loving undeserving sinners like us in Christ. And we pray that by your spirit that we would be strengthened to love one another and to give what we have so freely received in our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.